how can we have all of this structure to where they can feel good about all this work, but when they lay their head down at night, it's not because coach said so hmm. or because coach was there that somehow create this un undercurrent of care, passion, commitment, but at the end of the day, they think it's theirs and not mine. So that when they're in the middle of the fairway or they're in life or whatever, it's like, you know, I can do this because I chose to go do this. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. To learn more, visit baileymiles.com and be sure to rate, review, and follow us on all social media platforms. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Bruce Hepler is the Georgia Tech head men's golf coach. As the 10th longest tenured head coach in Division I at 29 years, he has guided the Yellow Jackets to an NCAA regional every year since 1998, while 19 of those teams have advanced to the NCAA Finals. 12 of those teams have finished in the top eight, with five of those teams reaching match play since the format was introduced in 2009. In 2023, the Yellow Jackets reached the finals of match play at the NCAA Championship for the first time, where they finished as national runner-up. During his tenure, Tech has won or shared 14 Atlantic Coast Conference titles. Only two ACC coaches have led their teams to more ACC titles than has Hepler. With victories in the last four years by Andy Ogletree, Tyler Strafauci, as well as Matt Kuchar in 1997, three of his players have won the coveted United States Amateur Championship, which is tied for most by any college coach. He has been named ACC Coach of the Year 10 times, which is more than any ACC coach in conference history. He is also a member of the Golf Coaches Association Hall of Fame and was inducted into the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame in October of 2022. Even more impressive is that his players have been just as successful in the classroom. Tech's golf program has been recognized with a perfect academic progress report score of 1,000 for 19 straight years, and every senior has graduated. On the show, you will hear Coach Hepler's story from playing at Dixie Junior College, becoming a CPA, to getting into college athletics at Amherst, which ultimately led him into coaching college golf at UNLV in Oklahoma State, and the principles that have helped him build and sustain excellence at Georgia Tech. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Bruce Hepler. Coach Hepler, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, well, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe give our listeners some some background to you and what life was like growing up for you. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in southern Utah, St. George, as home. Um, really small town back then. It's grown significantly, one nine-hole course, and and really won high school. And so uh, you either were kind of cool or you weren't cool. And uh, and I was not part of that. Uh, it was difficult, uh, kind of a late bloomer physically. And so high school was not something that I really remember or cherish at all. Wouldn't go back there and do that for much. Okay. But uh, really just a pretty simple life. Um, worked at the golf course, uh, picked up the range balls and, and cleaned the clubs and Filled the beer in the, I don't know why I filled the beer machines at that age, but I did anyway. And, and so uh, really go to school and go do that. And then all summer long, we would just play so hot there that they would actually close the golf course during the day. And we got to play for free because we were working, but just go round and round and round. So it was a pretty simple childhood there uh, in a small town in Utah. Did you ever grow up with any siblings? Uh, yeah, I've got an older sister who's a school teacher and then an older brother who ended up being a school teacher. And then a little sister uh, who still lives in St. George was my brother. And so there was the four of us. Uh, very different, too older, too younger. Um, I think I caught, I think my brother caused some issues um, with my mother uh, during the birth. And they thought maybe we better not have any more and waited a couple, four years and had two more. So we were kind of separate hearts. So it was kind of like almost two different, uh, two different childhoods. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, did you guys all play golf or was that something you gravitated towards? Uh, really, my sister, my parents did and my sister gravitated to it. And she really, I would hate to say her age now, but was really, really before women's athletics uh, took off, as we now know, with Title IX and all that kind of stuff. So she played three sports or four sports in high school, same in college. But uh, there wasn't any golf really for for uh, the gals. So uh, her brother didn't take up on it. Neither did my little sister. So it was just me, I guess. And so the two of us did and two of us didn't. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's interesting. But going into uh, your parents playing golf, you know, what were they doing as well while you were growing up that you'd look back on that maybe some of the qualities or the characteristics that they instilled in you? What well, was interesting because, you know, you kind of watch parenting today and I, I look back and think about it. And I don't know that my parents ever watched me play a single round okay. of competition. It was like, you know, everybody kind of had your thing and you did your thing. And, and so I never really felt unsupported, but uh, they were working to pay for things and, and do that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of what, what you chose to do. And they'd ask you how you did it when you got home. And it's kind of not what you see the, a little bit of the, I guess the helicopters that go around today and, and, um, uh, don't kind of give them their own space. So very independent from that standpoint. Again, uh, both parents having to work to kind of make a go of it and stuff. Uh, my mom was gracious enough to go work for an orthodontist so we could get some free braces. I These people I could eat corn on the cob through a tennis racket when I was in a <laughs> youngster. But uh, no, just again, just kind of do your stuff and do your thing. And, and uh, a few family trips, but nothing really uh, crazy. Again, it was just, you know, I think every dollar mattered and I remember uh, near later in my mom's life, she said, I really wasn't sure how we fed poor people out of one can of tuna fish. So uh, oh, wow. uh, didn't really yeah. didn't notice that we missed out on stuff, but we didn't have a lot of things, but was we're very happy with what we had. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, obviously getting to play golf and then spending time on the golf course when you're younger, you had a chance to go on and play college. Is, is that correct? At Dixie State? Yeah, played in high school at the time. Uh, where I grew up was to go Dixie junior college. Okay. And now it's a four year school and they've changed the name about 15 times. It's Utah tech now. Um, so played my freshman year there for the college. And then I'm LDS, uh, member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and, and served a church mission after one year in college to South Africa and spent two years away and he'd come back and hope to play again. And, um, started back in school again that fall in the middle of our fall season, they canceled the program altogether. Which really kind of put a cramp on, I guess, whatever career I was going to have. We were kind of the financial situation I got to play as a kid because I worked at the course or I was on the junior high team or the high school team or the college. And once that privilege went away, that really kind of was the end for me because I just didn't have the ability to pay for stuff. And so just really put my head down and at that point just decided to be a student rather than a student athlete. Absolutely. Well, real quickly, kind of diving into the mission that you went on in South Africa, what are some things that, as you look back, you took away from that experience? Because that's that's a definitely a different experience that a lot of people don't get. Yeah, probably the it probably if I were to define what changed my direction, it would have to have been those two years. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a long way from home. Uh, I could call mom on Christmas Day and Mother's Day, and that was really all of your communication, other than than uh, letters that you get through in the week. But I guess the concept of that was that you would get up every morning. And the last person you would think about each day was yourself. It was all about others and other things and not your needs and your wants. And, and so I think for me that, uh, I don't know, maybe the right perspective or how to look at things and and maybe just take a little bit of the, the I, I, I out of it and more of the we, we, we. And I think um, through that experience, ran into some wonderful people who, who thought a lot of me. Uh, I was not filled with self-esteem, I guess, as probably as a young person. Um, didn't have a lot of friends, I guess, but uh, felt like I knew my parents loved me, but at times felt like maybe they had to because they were my parents. But to find total strangers that we met and visited with and worked with to have them say, thank you for coming all this way to talk to me and teach me some things really changed, um, changed, I think, my perspective of myself, plus a chance to maybe grow a little bit uh, maturity wise, uh, physically and stuff was helpful as well. But no, I think it probably was the uh, changed the direction of my life. I was a very backward, uh, shy, didn't say a lot of stuff. And all of a sudden you start knocking on doors and talking to people and you, you kind of really have to grow up. So I, it really, I think it changed my personality and everything. So I, I attribute a lot of what's happened to me. Um, I guess whatever one defined as success, it resulted in those two years of, again, going away and not being concerned about what I wanted to do that day. Yeah. Well, if you, you touched on you or maybe shy at that time going you know, halfway across the world, knocking on people's doors, those things probably weren't necessarily something you wanted to do, but you did them anyway. And in the growth process that came from being able to do that, I think is. No, it wasn't comfortable. But uh, again, as you say, they say there's no growth in comfort. So uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, certainly a life altering experience. Absolutely. So you decided to go to BYU and just be a student. Were you still wanting to pursue golf? And and how did you kind of go down that path in college and then come out on the on the coaching side? Well, you know, it's, I think at that point, really, I think the golf kind of ended for me. Uh, 
they were, you know, very nationally competitive at the time and was not, I just realized that that just was not where I was from a skill set or an opportunity standpoint. So decided in life, you can make a lot of money as a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. And I didn't like the other two. So decided I'd go study and become a, a CPA. So I moved up to, to Provo after graduating from Dixie and did a couple of years there in the accounting program and uh, graduated. And in the meantime, I'd met uh, who had become my wife while we were at school there. And, um, she had taken a job in Salt Lake as a teacher and, and I'd worked for an accounting firm in, during a tax season. And so we got married when we were done and moved to Salt Lake City. And at the time, I really didn't have a job and she did. And so I kind of knocked the streets and found something, a local firm there and started there in the fall and uh, decided, well, if I'm going to ever pass the CPA exam, it better be the first time because I, I don't think there'll be more than that. So it's kind of difficult. Got married and all of a sudden it was Tuesday, Thursday nights and all day Saturday at the CPA review course as well as working and then the other nights doing the homework. So the first four months, uh, we didn't we didn't spend a lot of time together and was fortunate enough to have uh, passed the thing the whole, first time all parts, which is uh, for me, I'm pretty proud. I'm actually still pretty proud of that. Absolutely. And work, and then that ended and all of a sudden we worked right into tax season and that was 80 hours of chargeable time a week and writing down on a little calendar every 15 minutes what, who, what client was, what you were doing. I'm going, this is not, this is just not the answer for me, I enjoyed, take the the, test. Yeah. I enjoyed the, the numbers and stuff. And maybe had I left there and gone and worked for a company or something. But as far as public accounting, that was just not where I wanted to go. So I thought, well, you know, these athletic budgets, they're not what they used to be anymore. And, um, you know, you need more than an old offensive line coach to manage a $100 million company, right? So went back to Provo and talked to some people about, you know, how do you get into athletic administration? And they said, well, do you know anybody in the business? And I said, no. And they said, well, then you're wasting your time. It's a really old boy, old boy network and who knows who, but there are two grad programs that have been successful um, that it might be worth your time. So we we quit working in Salt Lake and loaded up the rider truck and drove all the way to Amherst, Massachusetts to go to UMass and get a master's in sports administration. And um, I still remember the paycheck was $52.63 a week working in the intramural office, but it did pay for the tuition. So in the middle of the right when school started, that the head coach at Amherst College at small division three school came over into our grad program and said, Hey, does anybody know anything about golf? I want to go on sabbatical and I'll give you a thousand dollars a year to coach the men's and women's team. Well, I jumped at that opportunity. And because the the, the academic work at BYU and, and that stuff made the master's program for me pretty simple. It was a lot of the same stuff, just sports related examples. So I found the time to go do that. And so I got to coach the Lord Jeffs and the lady Jeffs or whatever we are for a year and really enjoyed the young people. Uh, never really thought anything about it, but it was fun and the competition was great. And, and then I did that for a year and kind of let that go. Well, to end my master's degree, I had to either do an internship or do a thesis. And I knew a paper wasn't going to produce a job. So let's go work for somebody. And I was lucky my academic advisor there had gotten his PhD with the athletic director at UNLV some 20 years earlier at Iowa. Mm. So he calls him up and said, I got this young guy. He just finished our program. Good student. He's from the West. Uh, he needs needs three months to work for you to get his degree. Will you hire him? And he said, absolutely, we'll take him. And I thought to myself, my wife's a school teacher. She's not going to get in a contract for three months. She's going to get a contract for the year and pushed a little bit. And I thought, you know, if I can take enough work off somebody's desk for a whole year, they're not going to want it back. Yeah. And so I went to UNLV um, and there was the business office opportunity or working game management. And I thought, well, I can do the business thing. Let's learn this other side of game management. So the next thing I know, I'm finding myself interviewing national anthem singers. And I'm rolling out the red carpet for Jerry Tarkanian and the running rebels and lighting fireworks and doing all kinds of stuff <laughs> during those years. But were phenomenal. They won the national championship and came back and almost won again. So uh, and really engaged in that, making a thousand dollars a month. And, and uh, but it was wonderful. And so people really helped me there. And in the meantime, the Las Vegas Founders is a group in that town that's involved in charity. And they were running a senior event, a women's event, and a men's event. And go, why do we have the worst team in college? Uh, golf. We're trying to sell Las Vegas as something other than gaming. And and uh, so they came to campus and told them, look, if you'll hire a, an established Division One coach, we'll make you a charity of the tournament and we'll raise a bunch of money for you. And so in the middle of the year, they went to New Mexico and hired Coach Knight. And I, so I'm working there and I'd taken the team. I would just do what anybody asked me to do. So I'd taken the team to a couple of events and um, all this thing. I know they start this Rebel Golf Foundation, which has been incredible. And somebody needed to do the accounting for that. So I raised my hand. That was another $3,000 a year. We're just trying to make ends meet. And just kind of one thing led to another, uh, helping Dwayne and doing my other job. And next thing I know, I got two jobs and paid for one. And uh, we got 
really good, really fast. And uh, he had a couple of job offers uh, after that. And um, at that time, there really wasn't what anyone would consider a full-time assistant golf coach. You had people staying to finish their degree and so on and so forth. But there, I think I might've been the first full-time engaged in fundraising, recruiting the whole deal. And so Dwayne got these offers and went down the hallway and said, I'll stay here if you'll give Bruce a job. So I had to make a decision at that time between this other thing and coaching and just kind of remembered how, how enjoyable it was to be around the young people and thinking that an AD, all he deals with is there's not enough money and everybody's on committing violations or whatever and that kind of stuff. So I just made a decision at that time. I don't know why. I just I felt like being around young people and that would be just a, a better career. And often we switched from administrative in to coaching and work for Coach Knight for a while. And then uh, you end up going to Oklahoma State and then on to Georgia Tech. Yeah, well, there's a lot in what you just shared, but even going in that first opportunity to be a coach at Amherst, what was that experience like? Because at the time you had never necessarily coached, but you had played, so you knew a lot about it. But what was what, what were some of the things that you took away that maybe also were beneficial as you became a coach as you moved on in your career? Well, obviously, it's a very, very high-end academic program. Mm -hmm. And so we're going along, and I'm, I'm coaching like crazy. I'm just going to try to win, win, win. And so – we actually won the Massachusetts Intercollegiate, which was Division One and Two. So I'm thinking, wow, this is we're going to go win a national championship, right? Mm -hmm. So we go and and we win conference, and I'm getting ready to go, and we're going to go to the national tournament. And they said, no, we we don't do that. Uh, this is Amherst College, and we don't do the postseason thing. Academics come first. I'm going, huh. but 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 you know, and then you know, and even the guys on the team said, no, we didn't come here for that, you know. And so I think to leading down the road that for them uh, it was more than just the sport. Hmm that there were other things that mattered most more and that they weren't going to go off and do other things other than play professional golf. And just to see some, I think some young people with some real perspective as to where things fit in uh, has proved really valuable. It, it is more than just, uh, just a scorecard. Yeah. Which is a great perspective, but even as you talk about a little bit of your story, getting to UNLV being at UMass and then going to Amherst, it seems like you're someone who's open to opportunities and willing to, to go. Has that always been your nature or is it just evaluating those opportunities, taking a step, going, and then seeing where the next best option is? Yeah, I don't know that would you consider me as a risk taker. Okay. Um, I guess as I step back and think about it every now and just that somebody was looking out for me that this person knew that person knew that person. And obviously, you know, you have to work hard, mm -hmm. but I just feel like uh, there was maybe a bit of a higher power that just put people in places to where when these transitions happen, uh, I didn't make the opportunity. They were just there and, and feel very fortunate to have been in those situations. I'm pretty conservative by nature of changing things and don't really like to change a lot, but um, it's just like it was kind of meant to be a type of thing, I guess, is how I've looked at it, you know, later on. Absolutely. Well, it worked out pretty good. And when you got to UNLV, obviously you guys had a lot of success there. And then you went to Oklahoma State. What was it like to go to Oklahoma State? And I, I have heard a couple stories that I definitely want to point out. There was once where you were on the recruiting trail and you did it. You do, you're a very good recruiter, but you're going after Tiger Woods at, at one point in his career. What was that experience like? And, and uh, you know, maybe share a little bit about that. Well, it's amazing because, you know, now people are watching Charlie, right? And um, I'm guessing more people may have turned into the father son, tuned into the father son thing because of Charlie than any other thing. Yeah. And I think to myself back then, there were like eight of us that saw it before because it looks a lot the same. And, um, to watch something that unique and that special. I watched almost every match of his four U.S. juniors hmm. and other stuff uh, because it was just, just what you did. And, and um, you know, got close to the family as close as you could with Earl would keep his headset in so he wouldn't have to talk to you and those kind of things. But it was fascinating to watch that whole process. And then I remember, um, you know, I then had left UNLV to go to Oklahoma State during that time. So Coach Holder let me call the Woods house on July one. And I talked to Earl. I'm sure Tiger was made sure that he wasn't home. So he didn't have to take any calls. And Earl said, Bruce, man, we love you. And it's been great, but you've gone to the last place in the world that my son's going to play college golf. It's going to be a little closer to home. And he said, you can call Tiger back and, you know, talk to him. And that's, that's one of my biggest regrets. I never did. Hmm. Cause there were things that I saw uh, during that time that to me were almost mystical shots that you all saw later as a professional, whether it's running there, not that that ball missed low against Bob May and where it looked like he could almost control his ball, the match against Trip Keeney in the USAM where the ball lands in the fringe, back fringe on 17 and doesn't go in the water. Mm -hmm. 
and then makes the putt to go one up. I saw six or seven things that was almost like magical. And I just, I'm going to get a moment with him where I want to go back and talk about what I saw and how, what, what he remembers that as so that, that's one regret that I have is not calling him back, but obviously Oklahoma state was a tremendous experience working for Mike. Um, as good a coach as there's ever been fundraiser as good as there ever been. And I appreciate Dwayne for the start there as well. And the things I learned, but uh, to be, to help build Karsten Creek was a really special opportunity to work with the Fazios and to get to know the Solheim. So that, that in itself itself was a, a really learning experience for me. Absolutely. And before we get into Karsten Creek, cause I'd love to hear your perspective on that. What are some things you learned when you, you move to Stillwater and got to work under coach Holder? And some things that he was doing, and maybe that was a different perspective, a different way of recruiting, a different way of fundraising, or just the simple element of working hard towards something. What were kind of some of those those key variables that he was doing at the time? I think that the, the, when you look back at what he accomplished, um, I think Dwayne tried to copy a lot of what Mike did because he had been so successful. And Dwayne was an incredible fundraiser and uh, in building that program there from basically scratch to winning a national championship. But I do think that Mike will always be known as someone who was very innovative. I mean, they were the first ones to carry bags with a stand, the first ones to use these funky ping clubs and just on and on and on with everything that he did. Um, I, I feel like he was just years ahead of everybody else. So it made you stop and think a minute rather than just, it's, it's very easy to just get behind the plow and keep plowing and, and you just keep going down the same furrows or whatever. But, you know, Mike thought a lot about stuff. And if I learned anything there, it's just sometimes you just need to slow down and stop looking at the to-do list and, and see if there's a way to make the list smaller or more effective. And, and that's something that, you know, I really am grateful for that experience. Obviously they both worked really hard. Now I know that maybe no one's ever worked harder than, than Mike did, uh, tell the story of getting a phone call at nine o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. And I'll be in the driveway in five minutes. We got to go to work. And, and I said, but coach it's, it's Christmas, it's a holiday. And he looked at me and he said, you know, every day is a holiday when you coach golf. And we went in and sorted the campus mail and spent the day there on Christmas. Uh, so, you know, he was competitive as all get out. And um, so I don't, th I don't think that hurt to learn some of that stuff. We, we, we competed against each other whether it was you take the recruiting test, he wouldn't let you use the manual. You had to get a perfect score without the manual. Even you could, you could use it. And then he got it done faster. So he won that deal. So it was a four-year competition of everything. So I would say being innovative and just how competitive you have to be uh, from the minute you get up till you, till you lay your head down at night. Absolutely. Well, what was it like? Because most people don't have the opportunity to go and basically design and build a golf course. And Karsten Creek being Karsten Creek, and most people know how great it is. What was that experience like for you? Uh, you know, get to work with the Fazio family. Uh, and then that created with the, with the Solheim involvement. Those relationships were special. But, man, to just go out on a survey crew and figure out how you actually lay, you know, to, to take a topo map and look and see where the greens might be and where some tees might be. And then, you know, put that whole puzzle together and then learning how to cut, follow the, you know, start, start on hole number one tee and find your way around 18 holes with a survey crew and, Sometimes that meant with a machete and and some other stuff too. Uh, hard work now wasn't all fun, um, yeah. but just to watch and then and then how you have the clearing plan after you get to the center lines cut and the clearing plan and and then even to figure out how to lay some sod yourself. Um, but even things like I've learned, we built a facility here. Uh, things like you know the water on the, the water that's necessary for the greens is different than that the the on the outside, and so to have sprinkler heads that go in and out. It isn't just water that the whole area and just little things in design mm -hmm. that we've used here in the facility that we built and, and, you know, how to get your bunkers done right and stuff. So it's pretty, pretty valuable um, with what we've done here with our practice area at Georgia Tech. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've gotten to have kind of a masterclass on building a program, going to a place that has established a program. And then obviously what you've done at Georgia Tech, you've gotten to learn from some good ones and then being able to put your own tweak in it. But real quickly, before you know, we dive into kind of your career as a head coach, I'd love for you to share a story. And I got this from Coach McGraw's podcast. That's where I heard it. But I think it's a fantastic story that I think the listeners would really enjoy. But as a assistant coach or as someone that is you know working in, in a program, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, golf, uh, there's a lot of people that go behind the scenes and do a lot of work. And so one of the things you were doing was making sure logistically you had flights, you know, things like that. And I remember <laughs> hearing this story 
of you guys maybe flying for some trip out of out of Tulsa. But anyway, if you wouldn't mind, just just share yeah, that because so, I think it's everyone's so worst year, nightmare. If you're we're in the, about a year and a half into this experience, and and uh, he finally decides he's going to let loose of the tickets, right? So now I'm in charge of ticketing. And we obviously being in Stillwater, you can either use Tulsa or Oklahoma City. And we use both all the time. And uh, I think it was headed to the preview of when the NCAA, which we later won uh, out there. And so we're driving over and he's in the van and he always used to take the van and go stick it in parking. And then I would go and there was no TSA. And I think we were flying under Bob Tway and Willie Wood, frequent flyer miles, even though the guys with the names were all wrong. But we're just getting the most mileage out of the frequent flyer miles, you know. And uh, and so pull up to the thing there and I'm looking and there is a flight to Columbus, but it's like 35 minutes later than what I thought. And I go, is that flight delayed? And she goes, no, no sir. That's, that's on time. I looked down the tickets and we were supposed to be in Oklahoma city. <laughs> so I looked at, it and I said, ma'am, have you ever met the grim reaper? <laughs> goes, no, I have not. I said, ma'am, he's in long-term parking. And if you and I don't get this fixed, we're going to be in a whole, whole bunch of trouble. <laughs> so managed to get the flight changed and the flight back into everything. And so, they took, they decided I couldn't handle that responsibility. So he took that back on himself. Well, later that spring, we're headed to going to go to Hawaii in the spring. And uh, now I'm in the back of the van and his wife's Robbie sitting up front and she keeps asking, Mike, are you sure we're supposed to go to Oklahoma city? And, you know, he's giving it to, you know, Robbie, I got this <laughs> and I'm just watching, man. I, I got no, none no stake in the deal. So finally he looks down and while he's driving and it looks like we're supposed, we're down by Oak tree and Edmond and, Realized we're supposed to be headed to Tulsa and he slung that van around in the middle of the, the, middle of the highway and drove a hundred miles an hour. And I just sat back there and, and probably needed some depends underwear. I was, I was laughing so hard. It was like, okay, big dog, you, yeah. you, you messed up too. So I got a lot of pleasure out of that, that, that second go around. Absolutely. I thought that was a great story. And, and just, uh, yeah, when you're in the position good. logistically, you're pretty good. Yeah. 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 Well, you're like, Not oh my man, problem now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I love that. Well, you guys had great success, won a championship, Oklahoma State, and then you get a chance to go be a head coach at Georgia Tech. Maybe how did that come about, and what was it like to go, obviously, from Stillwater? You're going all the way back. You're going West Coast, Central America, and then you're going over to the East Coast now. What was it like yeah. to be at Georgia Tech when you Getting got further there? and further away from family and friends right. and all that stuff. Um, you know, the job came up, and obviously, Coach Blackman had had a good team. You had David Duvall, Stuart Singles, or National Players of the Year. So I knew of the program, obviously, and um, I played against them in tournaments. And all of a sudden, Coach Blackman decided to leave to go back home to South Carolina. I didn't apply for the job. Uh, I've learned enough in sports that people want to go out and hire somebody. You don't typically, for a job of that caliber, you don't apply. So I was just minding my own business, uh, working golf camp after the NCAAs, and uh, got a call from Homer Rice. Said, hey, I'd like you to come down and, and look at our program and, and you come highly recommended. And and so Coach Holder said, Well, yeah, you can go down there and sit visit after golf camp's over. You have work to do here <laughs> still. So finished that up and and flew down. And it was, you know, I'm from Utah, one fork, maybe one knife at a table. I'm going to the deep south with all this stuff. And I'm going, I'm not going to know what cutlery to use, or this is going to be really intimidating. I'll probably mess this up. But I remember walking his office, he said, Look, here's the deal. We've asked some current players some guys have played in the last five to 10 years and some other coaches. And they said, your name is the first one out of their mouth and at least eight out of the 10 of these three categories. And so you're no longer being interviewed. It's your job. And now you're interviewing us. And now that, you know, that, that's when it kind of, you know, hit me because, you know, you'd work for two hall of fame guys and you think you've tried to learn and do everything to where you can be successful. And now you got to answer the question, you know, can you go do it? And uh, we were about to adopt uh, our first child or second child, actually, um, the first one had passed away while we we're living in Las Vegas. And so I just felt like it was the right time and they've been good. So we, Tracy and I moved to Atlanta and uh, we've been here ever since. Um, I remember talking to Homer. I said, OK, now we'll, now that it's on the other foot, you know, why should I take the job? And he said, well, there's one simple reason. He said, I don't know that there's an alumni base uh, who love their school and who love their athletics and the golf program as well as the program here. And that's proven true time after time after time. I think we've raised close to $28 million for golf mm. since I've been here. And, you know, you have a little bit of the Bobby Jones and the Augusta national thing, and uh, they just care about golf here. And it's been a tremendous experience and we've received all the support and encouragement uh, that we needed to try to, you know, to 
to do what we needed to do to be successful in the, in, in the classroom and on the course. So feel very fortunate that he thought that much of me. And, and uh, I do think though, um, considering the academics uh, background here, I think that master's degree meant a lot to Dr. Rice. I think he thought to himself, well, if somebody's willing to go do an extra year of this stuff, maybe I'll have a better attitude about, uh-huh. you know, the difficulty of the school. And so, so I, I think there's an example of where my education mm-hmm. was actually a big part of getting the job. I, I never asked him that, but I, I think that was probably true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd love to ask you as you talked about that is, you know, a lot of people think that when coaches get opportunities, they're just jumping on them. And I know, you know, you're going to jump on really good opportunities, but there's a whole dynamic. You talked about moving from Massachusetts to uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, and your wife's a teacher. She also has a job too. She's doing things. Um, how did you guys go about making decisions? Did you do it together? And, and how, what was that like for you guys? Well, it's probably a good thing that she's not on. Um, okay. <laughs> I, would like to, I, would, I would like to think they were made together. Uh-huh. Uh, she still reminds me of that first job that she had in Salt Lake City. She was teaching kindergarten and she had a piano in her room and we've never matched that situation okay. <laughs> since then. Um, you know, I just, you know, she, she could see how difficult the, the accounting stuff was. And, um, you know, we talked and both believed that if I could find something um, that I enjoy, that I have a chance to be successful. At. And then that's, that's one thing I would share with anybody. And I realize that I'm fortunate. I don't think everybody gets to go to work every day. Um, to where it doesn't feel like you're going to work. And, uh, and so I, you know, her sacrifices to allow that to happen. And then obviously raise kids so, sometimes primarily on her own. Um, I like always shared with her, the bad example was always on the road. So our kids had no chance of turning out to be rotten that she was there every day. And, and, uh, but no, would not be sitting here having these conversations if she hadn't been willing to even drive the, drive the rented trucks miles and miles back and forth across the country and, and, and adapt her life, uh, ours, but she knew it would allow her to stay at home and be a mom, which was really her entire objective anyway. So I think the fact that that I've been able to, I guess, make enough money or whatever that is to where she could be a stay-at-home mom was was important. And, and if she could get that, then where we were lived and what we were doing really didn't matter. Absolutely. Well, I think that's great. Going into the Georgia Tech opportunity, when you get here, you obviously had been successful as an assistant with great coaches. Now you're getting to run the show the way you want to run it. What was the experience like for you? And how did you go about trying to establish getting the right people in, uh, getting great players in, but also doing things the way you wanted them to be done? Well, that's, I've made a couple of mistakes there. Um, you know, I was going to be Mike Holder Jr. Hmm. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, we're different people. And um, so I guess maybe some, a little of the, the toughness and the, the way we're going to do things kind of <clears throat> brought that with me. And I, that didn't go over real well. Because again, you talk about being, authentic. Um, and that just wasn't there, but, um, I did a good enough job that we finished last five times my first year and including the ACC tournament, losing to a school that only had two and a half scholarships. So (laughs) within a year, my uh, self-esteem and thought of knowing what I was doing was blown up completely in the air. Uh, had a wonderful assistant at the time, uh, Vicki Newman, who kept saying, look, you, you say, you know what you're doing. We just got to kind of keep the course. And, Benefit from being at Oklahoma State, uh, had recruited every top 25 kid in the class coming up. So with the first week on the job, I think I had four in-home visits and three more visits at the Rolex Tournament of Champions. So I, I was fortunate enough to, because of having been in the, the thralls of recruiting at that level, that I knew all those kids. And so it was easy transition. And so, you know, it was off to see Matt Kuchar and Jeremy Anderson. I remember Coach and I actually passed each other in the street. They lived in adjoining neighborhoods and we each had home visits on the same day and drove by each other, changing, exchanging houses. So uh, <laughs> okay. the competition began immediately. So obviously we weren't, you know, I think when Stewart left, um, obviously you lose the best player in the country. It's a lot to overcome. And um, so we were starting a little bit from scratch, but obviously Matt shows up and, and Wes Latimer and, and Nick Cassini who eventually went on to Georgia and helped them win a national championship was the first class. And then you add, Bryce Mulder in the next one and, and things just started cooking. And, and, um, but I do, again, this goes back to where the Amherst college thing, you know, let's find the right people. This is not a place where people who don't want to go to school, you should recruit them. And so a little bit into, you know, questions of what do you look for? Um, fit is huge. I think we've had two or three transfers in 30 years and have walked away from players 
making the judgment that's a square peg in a round hole and encouraging them to go somewhere else. Because again, it's not just my college experience, it's theirs. And you want everyone to find theirs, right? And not in the wrong place for your sake to shoot a score for you. And so to, you know, to be, I guess, honest or transparent enough to say, look, this is not right. You've come and visited. The kids here don't feel like what you want is what we do and encourage you to go find that so that your college experience is what it should be for you. Because again, there's no right and wrong. There's just different. Hmm. And so I think the thing with Amherst figuring out who fits academically and those kind of things and, and having those conversations and, you know, you don't really try to bamboozle anybody and let's, let's pretend it's something other and then we'll get them here and then we'll try to make it right after they arrive. That never works. Divorces don't work in the real world and they don't work a whole lot better in athletics. So I think chop anything up to maybe success is just making sure that the people that came here, maybe they weren't the 25th guy, they were the 85th guy or whatever, but they fit how we want to go about it. And they've stayed and most of them have gotten better and, and it's produced a pretty good program. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a great point, but even on the opposite side of that, how tough was it maybe at the start, because you're, you're trying to be successful and you're trying to build and establish your culture, but letting, you know, maybe there's a guy that's really at the top of his class, one of the best players, but doesn't have that right fit, even though there's an opportunity to get him. How tough is it to let them go to a place where they're a better fit and you know that, that they're not the right fit? It's hard. But again, if you're in it, well, you know, again, it goes back to what are you, what are you, what are you in it for? Right. Mm -hmm. Is it for you or for them? Absolutely. And uh, no, there's no question. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It's hard to walk away because, you know, this is a job where your results are published in the paper and, and online, right? I, you know, if I'm going to doing that CPA stuff, the only one who knew whether I was doing my job or not was my manager. Okay. <laughs> this, you know, this, when you, when your performance is in public and people evaluate that um, and it's not what everybody wants, you know, then you're willing to maybe cut corners or do something that you shouldn't. But again, just have tried to look at it. If it was my son being recruited, how would we want that to look? And I think there's guys who've gone off to other places and been really successful. And, and uh, I'm happy for them that they got to do that. Again, it's not, this is not my deal. It's providing these experiences for young people. And you just have to be, I mean, for me, that's just the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, real quickly, because you talked about the first couple of years, maybe didn't go according to plan, but you talked about staying the course. How difficult or easy was it for you to stay the course going into that third year? Because one thing that I think is really fascinating is a lot of people in a lot of situations, you know, people like yourself that have been successful and done a really good job at the program. Obviously, looking backwards, you can see how it all worked out. But in the moment when you're going through that, you're trying to make sure you're making the right decisions. And what does staying the course look like? And do I need to pivot or do I not need to pivot? And at, there's no answer that says this, this, or this, but you have to make those decisions. And what were you thinking in the moment? And then how did you go about just staying the course and continuing on? Well, you know, again, I thought I had learned from the best and that I should know what I'm doing, but I, there were many days and nights of like, what have I done and what am I doing? And, and I think initially it was to have that early success in recruiting, knowing that what we had to sell was appealing to people. The idea of a place where, whether you succeed academically or athletically, this, the road to a pretty good life is out in front of you. So I, I think it was the fact that had there gone a couple of years where we hadn't gotten who we'd gotten and wanted, then, then it might've been real, a real concern. But I just felt like, look, what we're selling, people are buying, high level guys are buying. And so just relax and we'll get the, we'll get this and we'll get some guys and, and everything's going to be fine. So I think the recruiting success probably allowed me to, I guess, endure some of the, the golf that wasn't all that great. Sure. And as you look back at your career, we don't need to do all the accolades. We'll do that on some intro for you, but that's okay. Um, what do you think has helped you establish, sustain success and sustain excellence? Because that's something you've done in your career with the players that you've had and the people that are a part of your program. What do you think some of those elements, you, know, you talked about it, some of those things, the fit, having the right people, but what enables someone or some team or some business and company to be able to consistently do that over a long course of time? Well, I think as the, as the younger ones come along and they see the older ones doing those things, it's pretty easy, not really to, not to really buy in what I'm doing or what I believe in. It's easy for them to buy in and see what those other guys were doing, how they were going about things. 
and we're going to kind of get some guys going down that direction, then as long as they're willing to to lend back and lend a hand backwards, the problem is when you have those people and they're not willing to lend a hand behind and lend a hand behind. But early on, we had some guys who were who were willing to share what they'd learn, and, and you know, like you don't need to just listen to coach, just listen to this stuff. It works. It worked for me. It'll work for you. And so the players do a huge part in either selling or destroying as you're trying to gain some credibility and gain some traction amongst, amongst the folks. So to have guys who were fortunate enough thought of nothing, what I was doing, what I was saying that it was helping them, then that leads to the guys behind. So I think it's just ultra critical that in the beginning that uh, the guys that you get buy into, and I guess they were, they were what we considered my recruits. And so they'd listen to my story and, and what we were going to do and bought into that. So those guys had already bought in. You know, the tough part was the guys who were already in the program because now it became, well, those are your guys and we're Puggy's guys. Hmm. Right. And so for a while when you had, so when you make a decision, a lot of the older guys felt like, well, he's just doing that because we're, we're moving, he's moving on to the new guys. And so, you know, to be honest with you, until you really had your own guys, that was always going to be a tough thing because it just felt like maybe there was something be a help. He was going to do something for his recruits versus those that had been there before. So that almost didn't really click until there was a complete changeover. I don't know that I could have done anything about that yeah. other than we just qualified a lot and whoever earned their way went and we didn't pick people and, and you just got what you got and it, it wasn't, didn't look like we were just favoring folks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you touched on earlier was you've raised $20 million in the, the program. Uh, you are selling guys on the vision of where you're going. And there's a lot of different things that go into being a head golf coach and being a coach at any level, really. You're going to have to do a lot of different things. And probably something that people don't realize is the amount of time you spend recruiting on the road, the amount of time you spend fundraising, working within athletics in the department, trying to help uh, grow your program as well. What did it look like for you to be able to also have success helping your vision come to life, not just from a player perspective, but from a f facilities, bringing in alumni, fundraising, and, and how were you able to be able to do such a good job doing that, in your opinion? Oh, man, I don't know if that was just get up early and stay late. Um, Christmas. You know, yeah. Having worked at other places, you watched, you watched Dwayne try to solve the facility problem in, in Las Vegas. And then, you, you know, in a way of getting places to play at seven or eight places instead of one, that's how he solved it there. They, did, they didn't have the ability to go out and build a university golf course. And then you go from there to move into Stillwater where there's really one golf course and then you have to build another one. And so those were two different ways of solving their facility problems. And then you come to the city. And so obviously I, I'm a similar Las Vegas situation. We were never going to be able to build a golf course. So, you know, the vision was to get places where they could play. And all of a sudden you become a member at Eastlake after it's redone, members of Golf Club of Georgia. And, and that was the whole idea of being a member, a member at, at Stillwater Country Club. That wasn't my idea. That was Mike's idea. So he knew that, you know, he was building all these places. And so he felt like having member status at Stillwater Country Club was better than, well, let's go over here one day and over there. So that's where the whole idea of joining. So when I got here, I suggested those two things. AD. So we never heard of that, that. So we got to have a home. So that's again, learning from that. And then when you start solving those problems and guys say, wait a minute, we used to play over here and now I'm playing at Eastlake in these places. This guy knows what he's doing. And, and it just intensifies the buy-in as you begin to do things all of a sudden, you know, you're not having, you know, maybe a guy gets his own room on the road instead of, you know, having to sleep and put the coach in a room with somebody. So they could see the development of stuff and that we were moving in the right direction, which probably aided to the buy-in, I guess. Absolutely. And you guys have been able to build a beautiful facility uh, at Georgia Tech, which is, you know, that's one of the top things um, that you guys have been able to do to attract and bring in even more talent. So there's a lot of things you're doing there. Um, one of the things I really quickly wanted to ask you, as you're talking about maybe yourself being younger, being shy, maybe not having as much confidence as you did as you matured. When we think of confidence, I think that's a pretty important component of being able to play sports, but also just in life in general. So you talked about your kids as well. How do you go about trying to help people grow in confidence, not just from your own experience, but from as a coach and then also as a, as a dad and being able to help people um, come past some of the limitations that they might think of themselves, uh, maybe shy or whatever it is to be able to be confident, not, not a arrogance or cockiness, but just confidence in yourself, maybe a, a humble confidence. 
Well, I think for me, um, obviously having not been a great player, you know, how do you go into the home of a young man in Orlando, Florida, who's being recruited by Buddy Alexander, who, you know, USAM champion and all that kind of stuff. And I guess my my confidence came from just knowing that that no one would, I guess, work as hard as I would for the for the young man. And so my belief was the whole process thing. And so, you know, you've got it for us here. It's, it's obviously it's a very results oriented situation. There's a score all the time. But I think for the way for us, you, have, you can't wait for that to be the confidence builder. And so it goes back to this whole thing, you've, you know, the whole Alabama process, Nick Saban stuff. Uh, that's how it works. You get them to believe in their work and get them to believe in what they're doing. Then, then all of a sudden that translates because you can at least lay your head down at night going, I've done everything I can. Or when I, when I pegged the ball on the, I'm prepared for this thing. And, and, uh, and to me, that's the only way to build belief is you build belief in your process. And once you can convince him, I, I truly believe one of Earl's greatest gifts to Tigers. I think he convinced him that no one worked harder or was more prepared than he would so that when they met, he would beat you. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's interesting in Stillwater, there was a lot of, you know, I kind of got it. I got to show up a little bit. I mean, that's just Mike. Mike has that much presence, right? And there was no 20 hour rule. And, and uh, sometimes I would see guys just staying there because he was there. Oh. Right. And I got here and I thought, well, I don't, you know, I, that we got obviously you won nine, 10 national championships that way, but I cut, that's where you kind of, I, I think I took a little bit of a turn to where, how can we have all of this structure to where they can feel good about all this work? But when they lay their head down at night, it's not because coach said so hmm. or because coach was there that somehow create this un undercurrent of care, passion, commitment. But at the end of the day, they think it's theirs and not mine. So that when they're in the middle of the fairway or they're in life or whatever, it's like, you know, I can do this because I chose to go do this. And that's probably the, I don't know, maybe secret sauce here is uh, our guys work really, really hard. Because I think they know that's expected, but there's not an omnipresence of me or anyone there. Obviously, we've got you can go play golf at East Lake, you can go play at the noon in practice. So we don't have the eleven guys all in the same place every day. Hmm. So you're, I'm not in their mix all day every day. So I, I hope that when our guys at the end of the day lay their head down on their pillow, they go, "That was those were my choices." And that's how I think you build confidence is when you can believe in the choices that you're making are the right ones. And they're as significant as the people that you're competing against. Yeah. Well, that is some secret sauce in what you just shared there. That's, that's a key, uh, having a level of ownership. I wish we had more time, but I want to honor your time. So we're going to wind down real quickly. A quick question I have for you before we kind of dive into something else is just, we touched on a little bit, but what does it mean for you to be a good husband and, and father? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, not to get all religious spooky here and everything, but uh, it's, those are the only things that matter. Cause I think those are the only things that are going to last forever. Mm -hmm. uh, tournaments fade, careers fade, but I just, you, your family, those relationships, I believe carry on after we pass away. I, I, I do believe that there's more to life than what we see and that those things are everlasting. And those are the only things that are truly are going to last forever and you, you better make them important because those are the only things that really the only things that really matter long term. Absolutely. And kind of diving in that, you know, how has maybe your faith shaped you or, or guided you as you've been a coach and husband, father, all that stuff? Well, you know, you can read uh, from whether you think the guy in the New Testament is whatever, any, you know, but but you can still read that. And there's whether it is or it isn't, uh, there's a, there's a messages in there that the way to find true happiness is through service. That when you lose yourself in the service of other people, you'll actually find true joy. And that's what I've tried to do here for 30 years is serve our guys and um, serve my family. And that's created a, a very prosperous uh, life for me. I know there are times when you're in the middle of an event and, you know, you're worried and there's pressure and it's the national championship and stuff. And, you know, you, you can it's easy to lose perspective of like how big a deal this is. And I do think that that before we had children. Um, I basically played one shining moment on repeat in my brain every day, all day. It was, it was what we were supposed to do. And it was the only thing that really mattered. And as you have children, you, you know, you go home, they don't care. They don't know whether 
so that that helped having kids that there it to kind of bring me back to the center of stuff and so for me now and you know when all of a sudden it's last year and um you know you got it's one to one and there's three matches left and you're up in two and square on one and walk away and lose the 17th hole three times and all of a sudden don't win the national championship. I just know that my faith and my belief and, and realize what really matters uh, made that swallowing that one a whole lot better than losing in a sudden death playoff in, in uh, 99 in Auburn as to how I, I took that. So um, again, it's, you know, it's important, but you got to figure out how important it is. And, and, uh, and so I do think things I've learned and read and things that I believe in have, have given me, hopefully enough perspective to, to deal with these young people in a fair way. Absolutely. And that's some great advice and a great perspective. Well, real quickly, the final two questions I have for you, this podcast is called building excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Oh, I, I, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just, just, I, I try to tell our team that when we finish in San Diego, hopefully this year will be just a sum of all the choices that every one of us have made. You, you can't fake it, right? I mean, you can't, I don't think you can have faith in things that aren't true. I think you can, you know, you might believe in things that aren't true, but really having true faith that matters and motivates has to be based on on real things. And that, that our year is going to be based on 11 people playing, two people coaching. Every choice that I make from the minute I get up to the minute I go to bed every day for these 280 days or whatever they are, that will be, that will produce the result that we're going to get. And that's, to me, that's all it is, is it's the next moment. It's what do you do? You know, you call and a kid tells you he's not coming. I mean, how long do you spend on that? Or it's just off to having practice or, you know, whatever it is. And it's just, to me, it's, it's the ability to move on the next moment, as soon as you can to the next task and just you add all of those, it's math. You just add them all up and that's your score. And so that, I think that's how we've tried to build it here is that it is the choice of whether you're a good teammate or not, how you treat others. What, you know, do you compete when you go to the gym or you just try to get through it? And what's your practice look like? And at the end of the year, you're those, you can't make that stuff up. It will be our score and that's where we'll finish. And I don't know if that's answers the question or not, but that's, I guess that's how you try to be excellent is you just try to be excellent. Yeah, I love it. That's a great way to end. And Coach Hepler, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing my your pleasure. story and the lessons that you've learned, um, as well as just the act of serving. Um, and obviously you learned that, you know, in your mission early on, but you can see the common denominator throughout your career as you've told your stories and then the, the success that you've accomplished with your team and your players uh, is all built around that for sure. So. Well, I appreciate I, I appreciate the fact that you think I've done enough that someone might want to listen or you would even if it's just you. I appreciate that's a real compliment. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Building Excellence Podcast. If you found value today, we would really appreciate it if you shared the show and left a rating and review. Also, be sure to follow us on all podcasts and social platforms, as well as YouTube, where you can watch full video episodes. To learn more about the podcast or any coaching or speaking, check out baileymiles.com. Thanks again, and now go work to build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy.